Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. Did anybody see that risen? No, I missed it as well, but apparently it was amazing and it's still on at some cinemas, so check it out. I'm going to try to. Um, But it's a film that was released a couple of months ago, looking at the resurrection from the point of view of one of the Roman soldiers. And and amazingly, it was on loads of cinemas across the UK and uh, got really good reviews. So if you see it anywhere, check it out because it's meant to be a great film. But this morning, we're looking at the cross from the point of view of the Roman soldiers. We're in this series called Crossroads, and uh, it's really looking at the crucifixion of Jesus from loads of different angles. Looking at, uh, last week we looked at the two thieves who were crucified either side of Jesus. What would it have been like to be in their position? What was their angle on the cross? But today, like Katie said, we're looking at the people, the Roman soldiers who actually executed Jesus, looking up at the cross, knowing that you've killed that person. But um, partly this morning, I want us to think a bit wider about the cross. Do you know there's a word which is kind of a theological word, um, which is cruciform. Cruciform means cross-shaped. And there's something throughout the history of Christianity that has been cross-shaped. The cross has been central to Christianity right from the day that Jesus was crucified. It's the central symbol of our faith. It's the thing that holds together the meaning of being a Christian. It's the reason why we're doing this series. But I want you to find somebody, maybe the same person or a different person that you said hello to before, and ask them this question. Why is the cross so central? Or maybe rephrase it. Why does the cross matter so much to Christians? And you might have some sort of deep theological answer or you might have never stepped foot in a church before. That doesn't matter because you must have an opinion on why the cross matters so much to Christians. So turn to somebody and ask that question. Good stuff. Okay. I asked Sally this question and she said, man, that's such an obvious question, but it's such a hard one to answer. And uh, sometimes it's one of those questions where we know it's central. We know it's like Christianity is all about the cross, but the why question sometimes is hard to articulate, isn't it? Does anyone find that? You know, I find it's kind of a hard thing to actually off the cuff say, here's why it's so important. But maybe there was kind of five, six, ten different answers in the room as well. Because just like our series, there's different perspectives and angles and even theological beliefs that we can look at the cross and say here's why that happened here's why it's important here's what that achieved and so um, this morning I want us to look at three particular angles Um, but the cross itself is kind of what we're looking at I worked in prison for a number of years and um, in prison prisoners aren't allowed any jewellery 
It's like no earrings, no necklaces, no bracelets, apart from religious jewellery. And so uh, in prison, me and Simon and a few others worked in young offenders' prisons for years. And uh, they have these things that are like the most cheaply made rosary beads, you can imagine. Horrible plastic kind of nastily moulded rosary beads where Jesus looks like a little plastic blob stuck on a cross. And, uh, and the guys go mad for them. So like all the guys want these rosary beads, which is basically like it's a crucified Jesus hanging on a cheap piece of plastic around your neck. And there's something, even amongst a place like that, which is filled with depravity and sin and hopelessness and brokenness, where this symbol of the cross is universal. It's everywhere. And um, so the question is why? This morning, like I said, there's kind of three ways of entering into the crucifixion, three motifs, if you like, that we want to look at. And we're going to be looking at these three from the point of view of the the Roman soldiers who executed Jesus. We're going to be looking at what it was like for them and what it means for us. And our scripture for this morning is from Matthew 27. So if you've got a Bible or a phone with your Bible on, uh, crack it open to Matthew 27 now. It's going to come on the screen as well, if not. Starting at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. This is right before the crucifixion. Jesus has been tried. He's been, uh, he's been uh, betrayed. And now he's delivered over by Pilate to be crucified. They gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe upon him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Did you know that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was his coronation? Jesus Christ is our king. And this is like the Roman soldiers mocking Jesus, saying, hey, you're the king of the Jews, are you? Let's kind of dress you up like a king. Little did they know that Jesus was in that moment on the cross, becoming king of the world, the king of kings. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they spat on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes, and they led him away to be crucified. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put this charge against him that read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, from the sixth hour, which is noon midday, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about this time, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at that phrase and exactly what it meant for Jesus to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
What does it mean for God in Christ to be God forsaken on the cross? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them ran at once to get a sponge. He filled it with sour wine and he put it on a reed to give to Jesus to drink. But then others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I want to preach on that one day because I've never heard anyone preach on that verse. It's so mysterious. When the centurion, the Roman centurion who'd executed Jesus and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what had taken place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. So, from the soldier's perspective, these Roman soldiers, part of the greatest empire there ever was, a great army stretching all the way from the Middle East through to Britain. They were there to execute a criminal. They were doing their job. And they were there to maintain order. They were obeying the orders of the empire. But at the same time, these soldiers would have been coarse. They would have been vulgar. They would have been without any sense of sympathy for the criminal who they beat, they tortured, and they executed. These soldiers weren't phased by the agony of those they were executing. They weren't phased by the blood and brutality of crucified people. You know, personally, I absolutely abhor war. Something in me just thinks war's like the most, it's like complete dereliction. You know, one lot of human beings destroying en masse another. And I just, um, for me, something in me gets riled whenever there's war going on in the world, which there always is, but especially when our nation is at war. However, I can always sympathise with those men and women who are in the armed forces because I think it's such a courageous thing to do. But I think it's such a tough thing to do. I can empathise with our service men and women. I met this guy once called Wes and Wes had been in the army and he was saying how in the army they train you. You know you've got a fight or flight mechanism. Ever heard that? In the army, they train you to get rid of your flight mechanism. Basically, like his whole army training was, how can you run towards the sound of gunfire when everything in you wants to run away from it? So the army makes you courageous and brave. But for Wes, he'd come out of the army and he was suffering from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And he'd found that actually he'd left the army and every time he was confronted with any sort of risk, he'd run towards it and use aggression. And it got him in loads of trouble. And he'd become an addict and an angry, violent man. I want you to imagine that you're like Wes. You're in the army. 2,000 years ago in the Roman army. You've been trained to fight. 
the brutality and blood of crucifixion doesn't phase you. And you're putting Jesus to death. Why would I ask you to imagine that? What horrible thing to imagine? It's because I believe in some deep, real and profound way, each one of us has culpability and responsibility for Christ's death. Right now, would you mind closing your eyes and just spending a moment imagining yourself being in the shoes of those soldiers at the foot of the cross looking up on Jesus, just for a moment. And just let the weight of that stay with you for the first half of this talk. Cool. My first point in this talk is perhaps a really obvious one. I'm sure everybody in the room, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, knows this fact. Jesus died for our sins. You could put it another way. Jesus died because of our sins. Romans 4.25 says this, he was handed over to die because of our sins. It doesn't get clearer than that. That's why I said we've got responsibility for Jesus' death because it was our sins that put Jesus on the cross. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says that Paul passed on to those people he was writing to what was of most or greatest importance, that Christ died for our sins. But it goes deeper than that. The Bible says that Jesus Christ didn't just take on sin, he became sin. Jesus was a perfect man without sin. Jesus was sinless. But listen to this, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. Man, the end of that verse blows me away, but the first part of it says that Jesus Christ made him who had no sin to be sin. Jesus Christ was the personification. The very essence of human sin was in Jesus himself. I want you to take a moment to think. Close your eyes again, perhaps. Take a moment to think about your sin being put onto Jesus. Jesus Christ died for our sins. Number two, Jesus Christ suffered the greatest that human sin could throw at him. Do you know the crucifixion was the most agonising death, death by suffocation, death by torture, but Jesus on top of that had been betrayed. Jesus had his best friends betray him. Not just Judas, but Peter and the rest of the disciples scarpered. They weren't by his side. He's betrayed. He was tried by the religious people who he was part of. He was a Jew and his people conspired against him. He was found not guilty, but then yet he was beaten. He was executed and he experienced death. 
I love this quote from William Barclay that says this, if Jesus stopped short of the cross, it would have meant that there's somewhere beyond which God could not forgive. On the cross, God says to us in Christ, absolutely nothing that you can do can stop me loving you. Why did Jesus come at the point in history when the most brutal, cruel, bloody form of execution was mainstream? And why did he allow human beings to do that to him? I wonder if it's so that we can never say, God can't reach into where I'm at in my sin. I don't think there's a place of depravity and darkness and sinfulness that's worse than Jesus being tortured, tried, betrayed and executed. This perfect man, ashamed in that way. So now we're going to take a moment to repent, to name your worst sins. You might feel uncomfortable doing it, but God knows them already. Do you know in the 12-step process, which I'm part of, uh, there's one of the steps is to take an honest inventory of your own life. It's a really healthy thing to do, to kind of honestly before God say, where are my flaws? Where are my sins? Where do I need to invite you into my life to work in my heart, in my spirit, in my actions? So close your eyes again and just take a moment to name those sins. Now there's a rule with this just before you do it. There's going to be 2% of those sins which you're like, I'm not naming those ones. Name them first. The things that straight away when I said that, you're like, oh, no, don't go there. In your heart, just to God, name those ones first and then the rest. Okay, so, so far this talk's been pretty weighty. We've imagined killing Jesus. We've imagined Jesus taking on our sin. We've imagined our worst parts of ourselves. I've got some good news. The talk's about to get more cheery. Um, These Roman soldiers who did the worst possible act of execution to Jesus, Jesus said something incredible to them. Luke records it in chapter 23. He says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These Roman soldiers were part of a system, an empire of brutality, reigning by the sword and the chariot. But they had some culpability as well. They're the people who did the action of executing Christ. And I think in the same way, us in this sinful world are part of a system almost like an empire of Satan where there's sin all around us and we're born into this place. But at the same time, we have culpability. But God the Father forgives you if you come to Christ. There's good news. So imagine that. Jesus saying to you, you after confessing your sin, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Like those Roman soldiers, we've committed awful sins against other people and against God. 
Maybe you're not a murderer, but I've met people who are. I've met people who are murderers, people who rape people, people who've done awful things. I've met people who are in the thrones of addiction, people who lie every single day, people who cheat on their spouse, people who walk out on their kids and families. But I tell you what, like it said on the screen before, Christ's suffering went further than whatever sin you've committed. And that's good news because in your sin, no matter what it is, if you come to Christ, he says, Father, forgive them. And the third motive is this, that Jesus displayed the greatest love on the cross. There's three Bible verses. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I think Jesus knew that worst sin that you just confessed in your heart to him when he was hanging on the cross. Yet he died for you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Do you know that's the greatest possible act of love to sacrifice your life for another and that's what Jesus did for you. Jesus says that you're a friend. And thirdly, 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. How do you, you define love? Jesus Christ died for us. I said last week that uh, one of my favourite definitions of love comes from this pastor-theologian guy called Greg Boyd. And uh, he says this, it's going to come on the screen as well, I think, that love as defined by Christ is to ascribe unsurpassable worth to another at personal cost to yourself. Love as defined by Christ is ascribing unsurpassable worth to another at cost to oneself. Isn't that ultimately what Jesus did on the cross? He said, I'm giving you worth and value and love which will never be surpassed and it's going to cost me everything. So there's great news there. Now, finally, uh, I want you to close your eyes for the last time and receive that love. Because sometimes we can wallow in our sins. We can live in a place of condemnation. We can carry around guilt on our shoulders, but God doesn't want that for anyone. We've come to Christ, we've repented, we've come to the cross. Now let's spend a moment just receiving that love. When you witness the love of God in Christ Jesus, everything changes. That Roman centurion in Matthew 27 had a complete shift because he had just executed a criminal. He was completely immune to the suffering, 
the brutality and the bloodshed of the cross. But after encountering Christ, being awestruck by the love of God in Christ Jesus on the cross, he said this, truly, this man was the son of God. And that's our proclamation as Christians. Truly, Jesus Christ was the son of God. Do you know this Roman centurion would have been putting everything on the line for that statement? Because for a Roman, who was the son of God? Caesar. He was the Lord. He was one of the sons of gods. And so he's saying, truly, I'm switching my allegiance from the empire that I've been serving to this Lord of all creation. If you've not done that this morning, I'd encourage you to do it. Come and speak to me or one of the prayer team afterwards. It changes everything. Truly, this man was the son of God. So what does that mean for us? It means that at any point, no matter where we are, who we are, what we've done or what's been done to us, we can come to the cross, we can repent, we can cast our cares on him and we can receive his love. But not only that, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, by the way, is one of my favourite passages. It's incredible. But 2 Corinthians 5.19, you might be familiar with it, it says this. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer holding our sins or people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Now, I wonder if that's good news or not. Is that good news? Is that good news? I think we've made this bad news. I've written a translation of this verse, which for most people, I think is the gospel. And it goes like this. God was separate from Christ, reconciling himself to the world, holding people's sins against them. It's opposite. And for so many people, that's the gospel. That somehow God separated himself from Christ and abandoned Christ on the cross. And for some reason, the world had to be reconciled to God, not the other way around. And he was there in the cross, holding people's sins against them. Go and tell that message to people. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is this. God was in Christ. Where was God? What was he doing? And was he holding people's sins against them? So our message is this. God isn't holding your sins against you. That's good news. The gospel is that God isn't holding your sins against you. And so you can come to the cross, you can repent of your sins, give them to Jesus and live a whole new life. And God's given everyone in here this wonderful message of reconciliation because the reconciliation has been done already. Do you get it? By the way, there's something we say around here. If I say get it, you say got it. Get it? Good, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your cross. What an amazing thing it is to be part of a faith, to be in a relationship with a God who didn't expect us to reach up to heaven on an impossible mission to get to you. But you came in the form of a human being to show us what your love looks like, to show us what a perfect human life looks like. To live a life without sin. 
and then to become sin for us, to take on our sin, our shame and our guilt. To die in our place. To defeat Satan and all his power. And to overcome death itself. What an amazing God. Thank you, Jesus. Let us be ambassadors to you, God. With a ministry and a message of reconciliation. Thank you that you're not holding our sin against us. Let us be people who go into this world, even this week, with a message of good news. That God's not holding your sin against you, no matter what you've done. Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org forward slash media.